8 to 10 p.m. The Viewpoint with Ashraf Garda. The Viewpoint with Ashraf Garda. Tell you what, when my when my kids went primary school, the name Mary Metcalf was probably the single most important name because she was the MC for education in Gauteng. So she was like our person to get education right in my province. Okay, all these years later, some of them are in varsity; they moved on, and uh, Mary is not the MC for education in Gauteng any longer. But I can tell you now, she still is in education. She's our big hitter for the night. We will talk about uh, the Youth Manifesto. From 9 o'clock, get the big picture on that. And we have part two of our latest series around the innovators. Looking forward to that, I can tell you now. Let's start in with our big hitter. Mary Metcalf is, uh, so as I said, certainly not the MEC for education, but she is the change and management director at the program to improve learning outcomes. So we'll talk about education and politics and leadership and everything else uh, as she sits with us as our big hitter for the night and you should join in as well. 891 to call in if you're SMSing 40938 uh, tweet as always hashtag SAFM viewpoint and then you tag me Ashraf Ghanda as well as SAFM radio. So Mary good chatting to you and thanks for your time. Mm, it's nice to be here. So, you, so I did make that point and I'll just start with that that at that stage which was uh, what uh, just in the first years of democracy, right? Yeah. Where, where you were the MEC of Education in, in, in Gauteng? It was 94 to 99. And I think mm-hmm. that at that stage, um, there was so much happening in education. There were so many expectations. Mm. There was so much pressure that um, people were excited about the new possibilities and probably watched their new government with a great deal mm. of optimism and hope. So... For those five years, I guess, especially being in Gauteng, where the focus often is with mm, the media, mm, mm. I was in the public eye a, a lot. Very, very much so, and I certainly remember that. What, what are your thoughts about, and we'll ask you what you're doing now, but what are your thoughts then, when you when you took office at the MEC then, uh, around education in our country versus where, where it is now? Ooh, I think that it actually does connect with the work I'm doing now because... I think that the first generation of of government in this country were on the whole activists who had high levels of optimism and idealism. And I think we did generally um, underestimate the complexity of change. We believed that change could be driven by Mm. um, hope. I've, I've come to learn that you could call that magical thinking, that because you have such a very clear idea in mm. your mind, um, you anticipate that it's going to become real on the ground. But in fact, in those first five years, we did achieve an enormous a lot um, because there was a, a driving imperative to reverse the negative effects Absolutely. of apartheid. But, but, it, but it, was it also revolutionary zeal, even in the classrooms, for example, where which is the space that you were in? Um, I think that the revolutionary zeal um, was complicated by quite difficult relationships between the stakeholders in education. So we had come um, in the education community in South Africa through a period where education was a very serious site of struggle and where um, teachers had stood up against what they saw were the apartheid authorities, Mm -hmm. and they had resisted those authorities. 
And of course, when um, April 94 happened, there was no instantaneous Department of Education. I, I walked into an empty office, mm, mm, an, an absolutely empty okay, office. Yeah. I, I was fortunate to have Robinson Ramaiti, Ramaiti working with me. Um, and we found one secretary. There was a transition team. And then the job in Gauteng was to liaise with the education departments as they were that operated within Gauteng, which would have been the three tricameral departments. Okay, so 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 you were part. Of, so that means even post ninety four, that first election, those organs existed. Those organs existed, yeah. and it took more than eighteen months. I'll think about the timing to do away with them. So they were the vehicles of implementing the new policy. And in Gauteng, we only had the three track cameras and the DET. Mm, My mm. colleague Aaron Matsuledi was the MEC for education in Limpopo, and he had he shared, for example, the House of Assembly with me, the House of Delegates <laughs> with me, House of Reps with me, because they worked on a Transvaal basis. But then he also had, and we both had the Department of Education and Training, which was the department for. Um, African learners in white South Africa. Is that, is that the name of the department? The Department of wow. Education and Training. The descriptor is <laughs> African learners in white South Africa. But he also had the homelands. So he had um, Gazankulu, Venda, Laboa, Bitsabaputaswana, um, Kangwani. I'm not sure which one. Okay, I wow. Yeah. So, so that, that took that. a long time to create a new department. And then when you said the revolutionary zeal, I think that that is an interesting concept to apply within the complexity of those interrelationships because where there had been strong resistance against um, apartheid education departments, it was a bitter pill for teachers, principals, learners to have to accept the ongoing authority of those education departments because they had to carry on existing. Absolutely. Well, I tell you what, we're chatting to Mary Metcalf. She's our big hitter for the night. She still is very much in education. She's the Change and Management uh, Director at the Program to Improve Learning Outcomes. You can engage with her on air, 0891-104-207. I would think it's about education, but if you want to broaden that, that's also fine. Uh, SMS is 40938. Tweets, as always, hashtag First of all, SFM Viewpoint, and then you tag SFM Radio and tag me as well, um, Ashraf Garda. Okay, so, so fast forward to now, and just a quick comparison uh, okay. uh, in terms of what's your assessment of education in our country now? I would say that we haven't invested enough in um, addressing the backlogs of apartheid. If you look at the infrastructural backlogs in terms of buildings, water, sanitation, and you map it in South Africa, um, you'll see areas where there's a concentration of di disadvantage. If you overlay those areas of disadvantage with a map of the old Bantustans, it completely coincides. So we have not done enough to address at many levels the historical um, effects of apartheid. Infrastructure, etc., is one example. And why? I mean, can, can, we, can we offer a, a compelling reason that is completely understandable? I think that the backlogs of um, apartheid are not only material, yeah. but they also have to do with issues of transformation and cap capability of the bureaucracies. So we created nine new provinces out of the old four. four. Mm. 
there are the areas that the provinces that do the worst in terms of education not only inherited the poorest infrastructure, but they also inherited the education departments of the old Bantustans. And so the Eastern Cape comprises, I, 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 I'll have to guess the figure, but I'm going to guess it at about 80%. I would say 80% of the Eastern Cape is the old Siskai and the old Transkai. And, and that manifests. Exactly, therefore. it manifests. It, it manifests in cultures of work practices. It manages in the challenges of transformation. It manifests. The, many of the officials from the privileged departments of the tricamerals actually moved away from the province. Now, mm. that doesn't mean that we don't have today some remarkable and committed um, um, officials but they're working against a massive backlog in, in multiple ways. You can still today walk into any school in the country and you can guess which historic department it so, comes so, from. So is it as obvious as that? Oh, it's absolutely obvious. I went to a school of indeterminate um, history because it was not quite in a residential area that I could associate with a group area. Um, and the the school was obviously completely um, multiracial, I'd say, which is the case for most schools these days. And I was asking the learners, you know, what's the history? They weren't aware of it, which was wonderful. Mm, they mm, were just mm. like South Africans who were um, African, Indian descent, um, so-called colored, which is another debate, um, how we la label people. But I could tell from the infrastructure it was definitely a white school, and I was right. It wow. Let, let's talk about what you're doing now. So okay. what is what is what the Program to Improve Learning Outcome? That, that's an organization, right? It's an organization that um, a group of us started in 2012. Um, and the imperative for starting the organization was several. Firstly, we are not seeing the change in education that the country needs. Um, every year we lose half of our children. Um, the economy is suffering because education is not delivering the quality of learning that's required. And at the same time, um, all of the investment is not bringing the change. Now, the investment is, is both in terms of what government spends, but it's also what stakeholders and corporates and um, foundations spend in education. Mm -hmm. You know, I often listen to, to your program and you feature people who've got wonderful ideas mm -hmm. about education mm -hmm. and it's mm -hmm. exciting, um, it's inspiring, but very few of those ideas can go to scale. Okay. There's huge investment and you see wonderful change. But if you start thinking about how do we change... How, not how do we replicate that? How yeah. do we mm. not do five schools, but 5,000 schools? Mm. So we... Um, set out from 2012 as a broad um, grouping of, of people who cared about education, including unions, including business, including government, including um, funders, to say, what can we do to change education and scale as urgently as possible? And I want to find out what exactly are you doing? Let's get to Let's get some of the callers now uh, in Kalanga on the line from Germany. Welcome to the show. Hi. Hey, Ashraf, improvement, medical food. I almost say good afternoon, good evening, and how are you? It's all fine. Morning, afternoon. I'm not going to say it's a bright new dawn. There's something else changing in the news, as we're well aware of it. Go ahead, I'm well. Thank you. Okay, Prof, uh, 
you know, I, I want to ask quite a, a loaded question. Number one is that in the past few days, I've had uh, the university vice chancellor of UCT uh, saying that they are trying to develop to develop plans that will enable teachers to impart their pedagogical and didactic knowledge to the learners because that seems to be one of the challenges and. I have a problem with that because the teachers are trained by the universities. Those strategies which they are using to train the te- educators post-university, why don't they integrate them to become part of the curriculum when training teachers? That's the first one. Okay, can I can I just just put you on pause? Hold, hold on for a sec because we may forget about okay. it. Let's just get let's just get Mary to answer that. Okay, yeah. I, I I missed that um, statement by the um, professor, um, vice chancellor of UCT. But mm. what I understood you to be saying is that what is it that we need to do in teacher education so that teachers are more effective? Yeah. Yes. No, yeah. So thank you. Um, you know. Teaching is a, is a career that is a wonderful career for many reasons, but one of the reasons is it's a lifelong learning opportunity, and there is no teacher who has completely cracked um, teaching at the level to which that person aspires. So you can go through an excellent um, teaching preparation at a university but when you hit the school, you still need to be inducted and mentored into all of the challenges of teaching. It's often quite a shock for a young teacher to find herself in front of a classroom, particularly given the complexities of, of education. So I would say that some, one of the errors that we make is to assume that all of the teacher learning happens in the training. That's only the first step. Secondly, what I've learned over the last five years of working so deeply across the system is one of the weakest components of the education system is that we don't give teachers adequate support. They are very much on their own. And, and, and you, okay, and you think why, uh, isn't it? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, hence we are saying educators are lifelong learners. Exactly. Then the second mm. uh, 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 question, Ashraf and Prof, is that when there was this another test which were administered by the uh, National Department of Education, it was found that the foundation and intermediate phase are doing very well. And the problem starts when the learners uh, arrive in the senior phase and FT phase. Then that, que- the, then that brings me to ask this question, Prof, that uh, still looking at the curriculum, for training educators, why is it not possible to create a specialist educators in intermediate phase? Because from my understanding in the current curriculum in, in South Africa is that in the intermediate phase any educator can teach any subject. It is a bit problematic because uh, that is where somewhat the problem starts. Okay, let, let's pause there. Um, uh, Mary, answer that specialists at that level. Okay, so the the question is actually interesting because you're saying, do we need to improve um, what's happening in the primary schools by improving, introducing greater subject Mm, specialization? mm, mm. And you're saying that that may be necessary because our learners are already doing badly 
from foundation phase. Now, I think that this question of what we can do in primary schools to improve the quality of student learning is one of the biggest national challenges that we face. Mm -hmm. Foundation phase reading and foundation phase numeracy requires that we really as a country invest in improving the quality of resources, the teacher support, making sure that there's enough um, reading material for learners to read, that the classes are a reasonable size, that teachers are, are adequately not only initially trained but supported. So there's a there's a great deal that we, we can talk about in terms of improving okay. um, what's happening in, in primary schools. All right, can we can we can we leave it at that? Thank you for your time. Thanks for that call. Okay, okay. there's I, I had one more is there one more? Okay, quickly, okay, let's do it. Very, let me give one other All right, but I'll give you a chance. Make it thirty seconds. One one quick point. Go ahead. Yes, yes, Prof. Uh, you see, the last one is this issue of uh, subject advisors. You know, uh, when you go through the different provinces, you find that uh, their role differs from province to province, number one. Number two, many educators, they see uh, subject advisors as these technicians and uh, demanding unnecessary administrative tasks, and maybe they are nearly there for ticking boxes. How can we use them effectively to improve the system? Advisor, looking at okay, got that. Thank you. Thank you for that call. Okay, there you are. Right, go, go ahead. Yeah, it's very interesting, I think, with Langer's questions because they touch on so much of the work that we're doing um, across the system. The issue of subject advisors is, again, one of the most urgent issues, mm. I think, in education because um, one of the f- issues that needs much more interrogation and understanding is who supports schools to do better? So there's two broad types of support that are provided to schools. One is what we would call in many provinces the circuit managers, and the circuit manager supports the management. So they would visit principals, um, check on what's happening with the school governing body, make sure that orders are being placed for books, that all of those things are happening. The people that support the teachers in terms of the pedagogical um, challenges that they're facing, how to teach this concept to this child, why are mm, mm. that is the subject advisor. And the ratio of subject advisors to schools in some provinces will make you, you won't believe me. There are subject, give, give us some numbers. Subject advisors in some of the poorly performing provinces in this country will be responsible easily for every teacher across four grades in two or three or four hundred schools. One person. One person for four hundred per- schools. One person. One okay. Person. Give me the corresponding figure in say Gauteng or the Western Cape. Okay, exactly. Now Gauteng um, has much lower ratios. The subject advisors who I work with in Gauteng are able to go to school and focus on the challenges of teachers and support them. In provinces where you do not have the capability of really meaningfully supporting schools, the easiest thing to revert to is compliance tick box checking because it's easier, it's quicker. Have you got a file? Have you got the things in your file? Now, 
checking if teachers have got their, f- their file and they've got the <laughs> documents filed. In That's the correct road checking, order. not even road learning. I, I want to persuade Foundation Phase Advisors to, to not check the files but to listen to children reading. She'll, she'll find out much more about the challenges faced by the teacher by engaging in the learning process. That's a good point, yeah. Let's go, I'll get to some more callers, but I'll, I'll, before that, so let's go back then to your program, the program to improve learning outcomes. So you, we, we were talking about deficits and the problems you experienced as in as a former MSc for uh, yeah. education in Kauteng okay. those years ago. Uh, and, and, of course, in 2012, you guys came together. So you came together as a grouping to do what? And, and what are you doing? Okay, so firstly, there's an urgency for change at scale and to design um, ways of intervening in the system that the system is able to achieve what itself wishes to by having the correct approaches to change. Oh. Okay, so what that means is that in reality, it's take KwaZulu-Natal where we worked between 2015 and 2017 in 1,200 schools and we were now working in 4,000 schools. And you're schools. working, is it an NGO? What's, okay. Where does the organization So we in? see ourselves as a change partner. Okay. Firstly, let me say that this is an initiative that is part of the stable of the National Education Collaboration okay. Trust, which is the NECT. So it's a partnership between government, business, and unions. And what we do as the as PILO, as part of um, the NECT, is say, if we want to change what's happening in 1,200 schools, we need to be very clear about what um, are the particular behaviors that we think will bring the change that we need. We need to make sure that that work is owned and driven by the department itself. Many of the projects that exist in education exist outside of what the department does in parallel to what the department does. We think schools will only change and officials will only change if the things that need to change are part of what they do every day and are routine. So we focused on two areas, working with um, circuit managers, subject advisors, to focus on teaching and learning and supporting teaching and learning in schools. It's easy for a circuit manager to come and just say, have you got this policy, have you got this Mm -hmm. policy, tick the box. But we are training the circuit managers to sit with the principal and have a professional supportive conversation about learning in the school based on evidence. Is it working? Absolutely, it's working. How, how, how 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 are you able to convince us? Okay, so... There's the, firstly, we, we, we um, are committed to monitoring and, eval- and there's an external evaluation of what we're doing. It's in, at the sc- so we work at district level and we work at school level. At school level, the simple behaviors that we think are basic management practices that will create the possibilities of achieving quality education are for teachers to, to plan, to reflect, to report and for the heads of department and the principal to monitor and support. That in itself has been phenomenal because there's so much compliance thinking, there's so much Mm, tick boxing, mm, mm, mm. there's so much people sending information up without a serious 
professional supportive conversation looking at the realities of what the teacher is facing. Uh, lots indeed to be concerned about. Let's get let's get some call, more calls. 0891104207. My guest Mary Metcalf, it's not going to go away from your former MEC for education in Gauteng, but of course in that period you've done so many things, including what? Agriculture and involved in Development Bank, am I right? Oh, there's so much more, yeah. right? But, but somehow you get defined by education, yeah. right? Mike, go ahead, hi. Hi, and good, uh, good evening, Ashraf, and good evening, Mary. Good evening. Um, yeah, hi, we met many years ago when the seaters were going, and I was uh. involved in one of the seaters. In fact, that's part of my question, is that, that that was a massive disappointment to me. I always kind of knew that the seaters would ultimately end up as an ANC kind of cash cow, and that seems to have gone that way. I'd like your comment on that, but where I also particularly want your comment in, uh, and I'm going to skip the fact that our education system has completely collapsed, and I'm sure you're doing great work, but whether it's going to make an impact on the fact that half those in the system that enter it will drop out, I'm not sure. But what bugs me most about our education system, and you mentioned it in your preamble, is the unions. I, I can never understand for the life of me why the unions carry so much weight in our education system. We are constantly referring to union leaders for comment on the education system. With respect, you are incredibly educated in the system. Union um, members or these guys that head the unions know nothing about education. They've blocked the school inspector system, so there's no way we can monitor the quality of the teachers. Anna is allowed only and when the unions feel or prepared to let us have Anna, so they tell us when to run our education system. They strike, as you know, when it's most damaging time for the pupils and they're at their strongest. So they their um, sympathy for education in our country, quite frankly, I think is treasonous the way they carry on. And then the sadness of it all is SAF in particular, but other radio stations are equally as guilty, constantly consult unions about what they should do next. Unions, um, I've always said it and I'll continue to say it until somebody proves otherwise, are there to look after the teachers and their well-being? Are they getting paid? Are they being looked after? But not to manage or comment on the way our children are educated going forward. Would you not agree when I say they just have way too much power? They completely box the, okay. you know, what's the word, above average or above their weight. Let's, let's get um, a response. should be removed. Thank Do you. They have thanks, too uh, much social. power? Should they be removed? Mike from Cape Town, thank you for that. Okay, Mary, go ahead. Thank you. Yeah, the mic's on. Thank mm. you, Mike. I really want to um, have a debate with you on this. I'm not sure if you're listening <laughs> at the <laughs> other end, but I think that there's a narrative about teacher unions which feeds itself. And the narrative is? And the narrative is exactly what, what Mike has presented. Let me say that the, the best performing countries in the world have the strongest teachers unions. Just, just repeat that. Let's understand that. The best performing um, countries in the world educationally have strong teacher unions. And the reason is because teachers are key to successful quality education and do we need the strong voice of teachers in understanding the reality? Okay, can we then bring you to South Africa to say are the best performing schools in South Africa also those schools that, that where the teachers belong to teacher unions? You'll be surprised because generally there's this narrative that says the unions have a negative role. Mm. That's not my experience. The greatest ally and partner in improving education and quality in all of the provinces that I've worked in, which is four, on scale, have, have been the unions. So why, why would someone like Mike, who's, who's pretty in the know with a whole range of things, then get it so wrong? And, and the point is many others may think just like him. Because it's the constant message from the, the blame for all of the education failure is put on teachers. My experience of working 
written in. You, you want know? to get some water? No, it's okay. We'll pause, okay. So at the moment, I would say six, seven thousand schools. You're working systemically. Is that? Of course, a union, a union will have within it individuals who may be problematic, and there's lots of evidence of that. But the union structures are completely focused on what they can do to support teachers in the difficult conditions that they face. We have workshops with the unions on Saturdays all day, working through. This is now? Yeah. Right, okay. Yeah. Absolutely. Holidays. Uh, the, the, there's also a, sub, too many fallacies. So if I take some of the things that Mike said and challenge him on that, this notion that inspectors can't visit schools, it's not true. In fact, most unions have membership all the way through the system. It's not just teachers that are unionized. It's the principals, it's the circuit managers, it's the subject advisors. So, yes, circuit managers visit schools regularly. It's part of their responsibility. Secondly, that they're always striking. Mm. When is the last strike? Genuine strike of unions? No. So... We need to recognize that teachers are facing challenges, that the unions try and represent them in terms of those challenges that are faced, that they often raise issues which genuinely need to be raised, and they um, are important partners in improving education. I would not even begin to work systemically on scale without the support of all of the unions because teachers trust their leaders. And they mm, are the important mm. advocates for improving quality. And, and maybe, maybe this is repeating what was said already in, in, in a different way, that, yes, teachers are there, but the teachers who are unionized, the unions really have one agenda, which is to try and get the best pr- value for their teachers, which may be fine, but at the expense of education. Yeah, no, I, I definitely don't believe that. I think that educators are people who are in education because they want to see the success of their learners. Related to that, they want to see the success of communities. They want to see the success of the country. That is what takes them to school every day, much more even than the salary. Mm. The union will represent the interests to say, are we being paid fairly? But the actual passion of what drives a teacher every day is improvement in the lives of the children that they serve. And I see that, you know, I I have this game that I play with with colleagues and friends. Working with people across these thousands of schools, if you ask me what percentage of teachers are absolutely doing their best under difficult conditions, I'm telling you I put it over 90%. You'd say as much as that? I would. Okay, so, so maybe here's the last point on that one then. Then why are they getting such bad publicity, meaning... And yes, Mike is right. We speak to unions, uh, student uh, union, uh, teacher unions often. Uh, we'll probably speak to the SATU president next week again. And we will. We spoke to them last week as well. We speak to them often. Why are they then getting such bad imaging if what they're doing is so right? <coughs> I mean, aren't they, they, they're getting airtime. So they are able to manage their reputation. But let me put, turn the question to you. Mm-hmm. When you talk to union leaders, do they have sober and constructive views on education and what needs to be done or do they only talk about salaries but but if they don't then that's their fault isn't it no but i'm suggesting that they do 
when you talk to union leaders and you say, what are the challenges in education? They'll talk about the real challenges of overcrowding, of shortage of textbooks. These are all matters that affect the working mm-hmm. lives of mm-hmm. teachers. So I see the union leaders, whether you're talking about NAPTOSA, whether you're talking about um, NATU, whether you're talking about SATU, whether you're talking about they will give you a rich analysis of the challenges in education. They're in touch with that. Every so often, there's also salary negotiations. Mm -hmm. Then they deal with salary negotiations. But the conditions of service of teachers and the conditions under which teachers work are occasionally to do with salary negotiations. And for the rest of the 365 days a year, I see union leaders talking about what can we do to improve the working conditions of teachers so that teachers can more effectively support the young people okay. that our country let's, depends let, on. Let's move on sideways to a sense, uh, to, a sense uh, to an excellent Mary Metcalf that, you know, we, we speak at length about um, fees must fall and what that means in terms of access to, to higher education, right? Does the same not apply to, to access to, to primary and basic education for, for all the re- reasons you mentioned earlier on? Okay, so the the funding structures of of, of and the policies of of government in relation to primary schools and secondary schools is quite complex and it's quite hard for people to understand. And I'll try and do a very quick summary. Firstly, education is compulsory to the age of sixteen years. All children mm-hmm. have to go to school. Secondly, there's a range of economic environments in which schools are situated. And what the government has done is that they've divided those schools into what they call quintiles, which is the top um, 20% and the bottom 20% in terms of poverty. So the poorest 20% of schools, next poorest, next poorest, next poorest, and there's five categories. They call them quintile one, two, three, four, and five. So every school in the and, country... And, and the richest schools don't fall into those... So quintiles. no, richest, richer mm. public schools are quintile five and the poorest public schools are quintile one. Okay. Now, because of the backlogs and the logic of trying to redress inequality, government funds the poorest schools more than the wealthiest schools. So quintile one, two, and three schools are in fact now called no-fee schools. Mm-hmm. Is that if you're attending a school which is an area which um, is predominantly serving the poor, you may not be charged fees. But schools that are in the wealthier areas, quintile four and five, are given a subsidy which is much less. So, in fact, they have to charge fees to balance the books. And they, and they do charge? And they do charge and does fees. And does it work? Meaning, are they still able to still deliver better well, results? It, it, I think that this is an area that um, going forward there needs to be some very serious talking about because some schools do extraordinarily well. Um, they are able to almost run it almost like a private school you, you, you see mm. from the outside. But there's many schools in areas which have changed the the composition, the socioeconomic um, grouping that the school serves, which are no longer coping without that subsidy. And so there's schools that hardly afford to buy their textbooks, hardly afford to pay the lights and water. And those are policy issues which government has to okay, look at. Okay, and there's more to that as well. There's a whole lot more around in terms of what uh, an, an educationist thinks about some of the changes in our country, and we'll get to that in a second. Mary Metcalf is with us. You can still engage. 891 The show is called Viewpoint. What's yours? Hey, SAFM listeners. 
Do you have technology solutions for healthcare? Or would you like to find out how technology can reduce costs in your healthcare facility? Then don't miss Healthcare Innovation Summit Africa 2018 on 17 and 18 October at Gallagher Convention Center. Join over 300 healthcare and technology leaders and learn how technology is transforming healthcare. Book before 10 October and save 1,000 rand. Go to healthcareinnovationsummit.co.za today. In an ideal situation, yes, you need your child to have their identity, their culture, and their emotional connection with you, um, which is why you want to speak mother tongue. But at the same time, there's a huge advantage in a multicultural country like South Africa to being able to build bridges with other languages. Meg Fora, renowned occupational therapist. Off the pitch with Lizette Khan, 7 to 9 p.m. 8 to 10 p.m. The Viewpoint with Ashraf Garda. So an update on that cricket score. There's a, well, 65 for 5 Zimbabwe. Uh, and a wicket has just fallen. I think Imran Tahir once again picking up that wicket. He took a hat-trick last week, remember? Uh, that's, uh, so Zimbabwe 65 for 5. 161 is what they need uh, to beat South Africa. That's in the first match of the one-day series. South Africa winning, rather uh, of the T20 series, winning the one-day series quite comfortably, as you, I would expect you to know. Mary Cat- Metcalf is with me. She's the uh, Change and Management Director at the the program to improve learning outcomes. So we're talking education by and large, but I suppose it's education, leadership, leadership of our country, all of that are to a large degree intertwined. Oh eight nine one one oh four two seven if you wish to share your viewpoint on air well, here's your chance. You I understand you're also doing some learning of your own, right? Tell me about that. Yeah, so it's, it's a privilege to be working with so many wonderful people and to be learning so much. And um I would say that one of the th- issues that um, I'm really finding interesting is the the fact that we've got so many new policies. Teachers find the the policy load quite mm-hmm. great. Mm-hmm. And and what what people have tried to do to make it simple is to reduce it to prescripts and rules. Whereas in fact the richness of the education experience is the teacher's exercise of her professional judgment. Um, There's Mm -hmm. a question I love asking, and I'm telling you, I can ask subject (laughs) advisors (laughs) across the province and across the country, and I can ask teachers, and I get as rich a response from teachers as I get from the experts. And that is, what percentage of learners have to be performing at what level before you decide you need to move on to the next topic because we've got a very mm, crowded mm, curriculum? Mm, mm. That is a professional judgment that every teacher is making every day. But because of compliance reporting, they have to report that they're doing what the prescripts say. So, so sometimes they may want to hold back. Absolutely. But in reality, they are being forced to show that they, they're doing their exactly. work, so they need to exactly. move on. So the, the heart of improving the application of policy and the real support for the teachers is to support the teachers in making visible their debates and tensions and challenges about, for example, curriculum pace. For that to happen, there need to be relationships of trust and support in the school where a teacher can say, I'm behind. I'm behind because this group of learners actually came in without having mastered last year's content and I'm having to make decisions Mm, every mm, day. mm. But if you go with this blind compliance 
follow the rules and you don't respect and grow teachers' professional judgment, a lot of that is hidden. So, so is that happening? What I mean, can, can a teacher take that stand and say, I'm holding back because I'm behind, because the learners are struggling, because of deficits last year? Would that teacher get into trouble? It, de- it depends on the culture within the school. Mm. If you have a principal who is in fear of the authorities and is in, must feel that they are compliant and isn't thinking educationally, it's possible that they would. We are working with principals and head of departments to be able to have those professional supportive conversations to say, how can I help you? Let's look honestly at what's happening with these learners and let's make decisions that are in the best interests. And for me, the prize would be when people in authority such as a subject advisor or a circuit manager come to a school and they say, why haven't you done that there's a professional conversation based on evidence where the teacher's able to say, let me show you mm. the meetings we had, the discussions we've had, the learners' work, let me show you the record. Okay, how often is that happening? That's what we're achieving. When you say what you're, you're doing, just we're that. achieving it. We're, in, fact, I just okay. got an, in fact, I just got a WhatsApp from a leader of a union who's a principal in KZN who argues that this capability that we've helped the school governing bodies, the school management teams to support teachers more effectively by simple routines, we can show you that in KZN primary schools in the 1,200 we worked in the first three years, a good 70% were beginning to practice the planning and the holding of careful conversations to support teachers. That's a fundamental building block of building quality, of building professionalism, of building confidence and professional judgment and responsiveness to the reality of the lives of children. Okay, interesting one indeed. Let's get more calls now. We're going to get to Archie in just a second. Before that, Temba from the Northwest. We crisscross the country, of course. Temba, go ahead. Hi. Good evening, sir. How are you? Even, uh, good indeed. Right. What's your viewpoint, Ember? Uh, I want to ask Prof. Prof. You have a problem here with uh, the sport and the creation education in the Creative Adventist uh, school people. Yeah. Because that's from primary level on the in the previously advantaged uh, groups. They are studying from as early as uh, childhood development up to university level. There are universities sports in the country, but they, are, they don't have a basics from the primary schools for teachers. At the moment now, the principals of Muse uh, and areas, they have now get the buses for sports and education to close uh, uh, out the, the sports fields uh, from the schoolyards. So there's no sports and education education for the African or disadvantaged people. We, we know nothing. People, uh, teachers don't go to sports and courses and messages. They don't even get uh, been put into it into good confidence courses to uh, places where they don't know anything about coaching skills and management sports. So that's my comment about that. Okay, let's get let's go. we've got that. Thank you for that call, uh, Jemba. Uh, response. I would love to see many more schools providing opportunities for children to excel in a variety of activities in addition to the academic learning. Mm. Children need to have opportunities to 
um, interact in different ways than what happens in the classroom. They need to have a place within the community where they can feel safe in the afternoon, where they can feel supported, where they can undertake not only sport, and I agree with you about sport, but also cultural activities, um, arts. And a lot of the failure to achieve that is because of resource constraints. But the afternoon activities that can be taken forward by schools with some volunteers to support the teachers that don't take expensive cricket grounds and mm-hmm. expensive um, tennis courts or swimming pools, etc., things like drama, dance, debate, um, chess, uh, any kind of board game. Now, what that requires is a different relationship between school and community because it's very hard for teachers to sustain a very active um, extramural program when they have the demands of preparation, marking, and traveling backwards and forwards, which is a big issue in um, rural areas in particular. Now, if you were able, and I've seen wonderful principals, and there's many wonderful principals, being able to mobilize the community and young people in particular to come in and do um, activities with learners. Too many learners leave school um, when school finishes and go back into communities where there's very little um, to enrich, to challenge, to empower, um, to entertain them. And school can be a very important vehicle. You're right that sport, um, we don't have equal access to sport uh, across all of our schools. And that, and that perpetuates once again in terms of transformation issues. Exactly. I would think in that. Um, let, let's get another call. I'm going to ask you a question about violence. Archie on the line. Hi. Hi, sir. Good talking to you, Archie. Go ahead. Comrade Prof, I can only say wow. And then followed that by are you clonable? <laughs> Meaning, what is your spread around the country? And are you followable? Well, where do people follow you? Where do people, I mean, uh, I mean the teachers or ex-teachers, I mean, go to a corner where they can get a person like you or a person you have cloned and then now is there. Uh, I mean, you are in the right course of our education. I thank you. Okay, got that. How can you be cloned? That's an education no, it's, it's question. A, it's, yeah. a, it's, a, it's an interesting question because, you know, we, it's what we're doing in learning from all of the schools that we're working with is we are learning about what works so that what works can be packaged and shared. All of the training material, all of the written material, we are want to make it open source so that anybody can mm, use it. Mm, yeah. We've we've started with um, um, a, 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 some research that's been done and a book that's been published looking at education change on scale. Is, that, is that what it's called? Yeah, okay. I'll, I'll, I'll do a tweet on your timeline that gives details about about the book because it's an open education book. It's free. Anyone can distribute it. And that was academics coming in looking at what we're doing and writing about it so that anybody can read about it. As we refine and learn across different educational contexts, what works in one context may not work in another, is that we now have a website and we will be sharing um, in the next couple of years the cloning 
not of an individual, but of the ideas of, of concepts, right? of, yeah. that have been developed by people collaboratively. Okay. Uh, there's another question, uh, Mary or Matt Calf. Why are, why are our results so appalling? My granddaughter can't read and can't comprehend at the age of 16 from somebody called Peg. Okay. Mm. Okay, so I think that reading um, and numeracy in the foundation news is one of the big challenges that we face. Um, what we do, um, and it's part of the approach of the NECT, is all foundation-faced teachers get um, lesson plans and resources for the teaching of maths and, and numeracy. The lesson plans are not a script. The lesson plans are there to help teachers with the methodology particularly in relation to new content. Reading is like learning to drive. You can only drive by practicing. Reading, you only mm. learn to read by reading. We have to do more, and this is something that I always will challenge government on, to get more reading material into schools because children need access to books. We need to get that um, reading well um, embedded in the first language in the first three years. Are, are, are we losing the battle? I mean, I no, absolutely love reading. Why, why, why can't I mean? I've I've heard this story about reading like five hundred times, right? And yet, and I agree with you. If you read well, you can speak well, you can comprehend well. You, all those things. You can. You've got access to all of the other subjects. So you know, there's this um, survey that's done internationally, and where we always do do very poorly called Pearls. And the Pearls report, um, published by the University of Pretoria, is is very clear. They say, this is what we need to do to improve. We need to get more books into classrooms. We need to get more support for teachers. We need to have smaller class sizes. And there's so much just research evidence and basic common sense that would say we have to put much more emphasis on getting numeracy and literacy correct in the foundation phase. And that requires assisting the system to introduce changes that are not tick boxing. Okay, here's a question from Darlene Reddy saying, I have a question for Ms. Metcalf. What is the National Department of Education doing to ensure the safety of educators given the recent spate of learner violence in the classroom? I watched that movie, Blackboard Jungle, a long time ago. Shades of that. Yeah. The question of um, safety at schools um, there's what Davina is talking about is where you have internal tensions mm -hmm. and what often happens is when you have external tensions um, and therefore the perimeter need, needs to be safe. I would say that um, the challenges of discipline within the schools have to do firstly with effective school management and having um, a, a sense of order in a school. Any experienced educator can walk into school and tell you on a score what's the sense of order here one of the things I like to do is look at the toilets look at the litter where there's not a sense of order you've got a large mass of, of young people with without clear expectations and routines about what, what, what should be happening second thing is that we need to understand that our, our schools are situated in communities many of which have enormous social problems themselves. And by the way, to go back to my determination mm. to defend teachers, mm, is mm. I can't tell you how many teachers in this country every day are bringing food, face cloths, Vaseline to help children. 
prepare for the so day because it's not coming. Abso- yeah, it's yeah. absolute. So there's there's social problems. You've got drugs in communities. You've got high levels of dropout. Those begin to affect the school itself. Where you have a strong school management team supported by a strong school governing body, you can create a sense of order even in the most difficult conditions. Okay. Are you are you a fan of private schools? I think you're not. Am I a friend? A friend of private schools, private um, I education. think that uh, this is a simple one for me. Um, private schools have a right to exist, and I wish them well. But my passion is to improve public schooling for all so that the children of the poor can, through education, access the opportunity to break the cycle of poverty and achieve their potential. Mm. Is, so is, other people can do private schools, I don't do you private want, You want to raise that level, I would think, isn't it? Is there a, let's call it a prototype of a school. I mean, what would be, let's call it a winning school or, or a champion school. What What are the five or six or ten, but, but we don't have much time, let's maybe five key things that that school needs to have to be okay. this winning school? I would say that a winning school is a school where the relationships between the staff are relationships of support and respect, where the people who have a responsibility to supervise and understand that supervision is primarily a relationship of support. If you have those relationships functioning well, then the school can operate as a team to get routines within the school that make it possible for learners to know what is expected of them and for them to um, not only know what's expected of them, but to flourish, to create conditions where learners feel um, cherished, where learners feel respected, where learners feel that their self-esteem is growing. And that requires a huge amount of organization and um, support within the school. And I think generally people whose only experience of schooling is of being learners themselves when it all looked mm, so mm, easy mm, mm, mm. don't understand the complexity of organization and, and within are, are we school. getting schools by getting that right? Absolutely. Schools in the poorest parts of the country and rural parts of the country, and that's why I feel privileged to be able to say that because I've been in those schools. Amazing schools are getting it right in terms of supporting quality teaching and learning, making sure that the school systems are working, uh, working closely with the community, uh, caring for learners. And all of that has to do with um, it's driven by people who have a passion to improve the country through education. And, and we've got 30 seconds to go. The role of parents then in all of that. Yeah. Uh, parents, a school cannot take full responsibility f- for, for um, the, the life fulfillment of, of, of learners. Parents have an equal role to play in partnership with the schools. What we often find, and I think that's what makes me, breaks my heart sometimes, is parents blaming the school and the school blaming the parents. What you have in the middle is a learner who's in trouble. And you need both the school and the parents to be able to come together and understand how they can cooperate 
to address the real challenges that that learner is That's a good point. Facing. That's where we can leave it, Mary Metcalf. I know you're on Twitter. If there's other things that you need to mention or to reiterate or emphasize or things you've forgotten, just mention it there. Hashtag SFM Viewpoint. We would certainly share it as well. Mary Metcalf, our big hitter for the night. And we'll have a podcast up of that tomorrow morning around 9 o'clock. We're going to talk about, about South Africa's youth and the youth manifesto, what that means really. We'll find out in a moment. Let's get the news. It's 9 o'clock.